Okay, we're in chapter 3 and in the middle of a very serious uh, crisis. The crisis began when the king of Moab, his name is Mesha, he rebelled against the king of Israel, Yoram, king of Israel, after many, many years of subjugation, probably from the times of David, Moab had been giving tribute over to, the, to Israel, to the Israeli kings. And now after the death of Ahav, uh, the king of Moab rebels and Yoram is going to try to put down this rebellion and he asks the king of Judea, Yoshaphat, to join him. And the king of Judea, Yoshaphat, obliges. He's, he has an interest as well in fighting Moab. And on their way, they also pick up the king of Edom because the king of Edom was also under the thumb of Yoshaphat. So they figure the more the merrier. Let's take three kings to put down the king of Moab. Three against one. But the problem is, by picking up the king of Edom, they went southward, and there was a very circular route to get to Moab, a journey of seven days, going southwards and then going back. And at that point, they see they have a logistical problem here. There's no water. No water for them, no water for the animals, and there's a whole bunch of soldiers on hand. And the righteous of the three, Yoshaphat, uh, ask, look, let's inquire of a prophet. Let's uh, turn to Hashem and see what we should do. So, um, one of the servants there of Yoram says, well, you know, Elisha's here, Elisha. The prophet Elisha, who poured water on Elijah's hands, he's amongst us. And that's pretty amazing, you know, we said that Elisha would just be there, just with the Jewish people in their time of need, not to rebuke necessarily, not to prophesy, just to be with his people and be there and feel the pain of Am Yisrael. That's what Elisha was all about. And now they need Elisha to tell them what to do. So, Yoshaphat, upon hearing that Elisha is, is amongst them, says the following in verse 12. Oh, the word of the Lord is with him. That is, Yoshaphat says, oh, Elisha's here? Well, he's the real deal. He's not one of these false prophets, you know, that Achav was prancing before me. I know he has the word of God in him. Now, it's very likely that Yoshaphat doesn't know Elisha personally because Elisha and Elijah, they were, uh, they were doing their thing in the Shomron in, to the kings of Israel, not to the kings of Judea and Jerusalem. But that doesn't mean Yoshaphat doesn't know who he is. So it says the following in the verse 12, the, in the continuation of that verse, Vayudu alav melech Yisrael, Yoshaphat umelech Adom. So they went down to him the king of Israel, Yoshaphat, and the king of Edom, they all go down to Elisha. So, what the verse though um, has to be looked at here and what the sages uh, cling on to is the fact that it doesn't say King Yoshaphat. It says the king of Israel, Yoshaphat, and the king of Edom. Say King Yoshaphat. Give his title like he gave the title to the other king. So, there's two reasons given in uh, Bamid Barabba 21. This is the following. That, Yoshaphat, because of his humility, they want to show his humility in the verse, that he removed the title of king because being he was righteous, he was humble. And when he appears before the prophet, he removed his royal crown and his royal robe and he came before the prophet as a commoner. The other reason why it says Yoshaphat, not King Yoshaphat, it says that, and I'll read it in Hebrew here, he was supposed to be killed with Achav. Remember that war against Aram? Back in the end of chapter uh, Kings 1? 
Yoshafat was with Ahav in that war. And if you recall, the Syrians targeted Yoshafat. They were just charging him, about to kill him. And he cried it to Hashem and was saved miraculously, miraculously at the last second. And therefore, Yoshafat looks at himself as a man living on borrowed time. I should be dead now, okay? So I don't use the, the term king for me anymore. So that's all in the fact that it says Yoshaphat in verse 12 and not King Yoshaphat. Okay, so this is in verse 13. Let's see what happens. Now, what is Elisha going to tell them? Verse 13. Vayomer, Elisha. And Elisha said, El Melch Yisrael. And he addresses first Melch Yisrael. You have to remember that Melch Yisrael, Yoram, he's a lot bigger than Yoshaphat and the king of Edom. So he gets prime billing. I mean, he's the big king here. He's the king over the ten tribes. Not one puny tribe like Yoshaphat or two tribes. And Yoram is the king over a huge area of land and has conquered many nations. So he's the major king amongst the three. And Elisha now tells Yoram, king of Israel, Mali Valach, what do you have to do with me? I mean, what do I have to do with you? Go to your father's prophets. Go to your mother's prophets. You know, what, are you, what are you doing with me? So, um, interesting that Elisha just zaps the king of Israel right between the eyes and stings him and mocks him and says, what are you coming to me? Go to your father's and mother's prophets, your false prophets of Jezebel. So, that's kind of interesting because when we, when we talked about Yoshaphat, the king Yoshaphat, why is he with, why is he with King Yoram in the first place? I mean, Yoshaphat shouldn't be with Yoram. Yoram is a wicked king. And it's true that he's Jewish. You know, he's a king of Israel. But Yoshaphat has been rebuked harshly by the prophets over and over again for his alliances with the kings of Israel. When he was with Achav, he almost got killed for it. And he was rebuked in Devrei Amim by the prophet Yehu ben Hanani. How dare you hang out with these bad kings, with these evil men? And then when Yoshaphat was with Achaziyahu, the other son of Achav, he was rebuked by the prophet for his alliances with Achaziyahu and he broke off his alliances, the verses said. But here he is again with Yoram. So what did we say? Well, we said that perhaps Yoshefet sees that Yoram is an improvement on, on Achav and Achaziyahu because the verse said in verse 2 that Yoram removed the monuments of the Baal. So, so Yoshefet might be thinking that maybe Yoram is is a better person, better king, more righteous. But obviously, Elisha doesn't think so. That's what you can find out from this verse. And it says in further, what does it say now? In verse 13, well, Yoram, he responds to Elisha and he says, Al, no, 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 please, please. For Hashem has summoned these three kings to deliver them into the hands of Moab. So, King Yoram is pleading with Elisha. I mean, if it's not for my sake, maybe for the sake of these three kings, okay? We're going to die if you don't help us. you got to help us. So what does Elisha say in verse 14? So Elisha said, As the Lord of the hosts live, who I stood before him. So that is Elisha is now swearing in the name of God. But notice he uses the Lord of hosts. I mean, God has many different titles to him, many different names that can be invoked. But Elisha invokes the Lord of hosts, Hashem Tzvakot, probably because we're talking about a war situation. So one of the names of Hashem is the Shem of, 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 of the legion of, of hosts. 
And that's the name Elisha uses here. And he says, If it wasn't for Yoshefat standing before me, who I respect, I would not even look at you or see you. So once again, Elisha is just nailing the king of Israel, Yoram, just zapping him again that I wouldn't even look at your face if it wasn't for Yoshafat, the righteous king who is accompanying you. So on this, the sages teach something very interesting. It says in Mechsecha Megillah 28, and I'll read it in Hebrew and translate. Rebbe asked Rebbe Yoshua ben Karcha, B'maharachti amin. So Rebbe asked Yoshua ben Karcha, how did you merit to live such a long life? Omalo, So Rabbi Yoshua said, you just jinxed me. I mean, you just shortened my life. Why did you have to ask me that? I mean, you, you know, you gave me the evil eye. Omalo, Rebbe. So Rebbe said, listen, I just want to know. I want to learn Torah. Omalo. So he gives the answer. That I never looked in the face of an evil person. And they give the verse here, as it says, what Elisha said, that if it wasn't for Yoshafat, I would not look at your face. So we learn from this verse that it's not healthy to look in the eyes of an evil person. Maybe the eyes are the windows to the soul, and you're looking at an evil soul, and it doesn't do you any good. So if you know an evil person, just don't look them straight in the eye. Okay, so now it says in verse 15, what does Elisha say now? Well, Elisha's gonna, he's gonna help them. He's gonna give a prophecy. But first, he's got to get in the prophetic mood. So it says like this, He says, Get for me a musician. Somebody who can play. Vayakin again. And it was that when they played for him, I mean again, when some musician played for him, love, Yarashem. Then the word of God came upon him. So this is really a fascinating verse. It's, it's, it seems that Elisha was kind of angry. You know, we saw the last two verses. He was kind of scolding the king of Israel. He just wasn't in the mood for prophecy because we learn in Masechet Shabbat, page 30, that you can only feel Hashem's presence through simcha. Only through simcha, through joy, can one feel the divine presence. That's what it says, L'lamed she'en shechina shora lo mitoch entzvut, lo mitoch atzlut, elo mitoch devar simcha shel mitzvah that the Divine Presence can only uh, be upon a person, not through sadness or depression, but through simcha. And that's why, by the way, Yaakov Avinu, when he was depressed about Joseph, lost his Ruach HaKodesh, he lost his prophecy, because he was sad. So, Elisha wasn't joyous. He had just finished speaking to the King of Israel and scolding him. So, to get in the mood... He had to be happy to get in the mood for prophecy. How do you become happy? Play music. There's nothing like music to make you happy, to get you going, to get your juices flowing. Of course, we're talking about, you know, Simcha Shal Mitzvah. We're not talking about rock and roll necessarily, but if that gets you on a spiritual high, maybe, maybe it's okay. But you see here clearly in verse 15 that un- until they played music for him, he just could not get into the mood. Okay, so now let's see what happens. They play from the music and now the prophecy is upon him. And he says now he's going to give over his prophecy. Verse 16. Thus the Lord says, So he says, This valley 
will become overflowing with water. It will become pools and pools of overflowing water. So he's telling him really good news that this valley you see here on these valleys and these water wells around us that are empty, they're going to become overflowing with water. And he continues the prophecy in verse 17. Kiko Amar Hashem. Thus the Lord says, You might not see the wind. And you might not see the rain. But that valley and that well will be filled with water. You will drink from it. And your cattle, your beasts will all drink from that water. So, He's given over a really positive prophecy here that you're going to get the water you're going to need. It's going to fill up even though you won't see the rainfall. And he continues in verse 18, even better news. That's nothing in the eyes of the Lord. You, you want to know what's going to happen in your war against Moab? Well, he will deliver Moab into your hands. The Lord is going to grant you victory. So that's tremendous news and a very positive prophecy. And we're going to see that the same miracle of the water is going to quench their thirst and it's also going to be the key to the victory over Moab. We'll see that as we go along. So it says now in verse 19, he continues his prophecy, And you shall strike every ear mivtsar, every fortified city, and all, uh, every choice city, you're going to just wipe out and every tree you're going to destroy and wipe out. And the springs of the water you're going to clog up. You're going to clutter up all their fields with stones. So apparently when wars were fought in those days, it wasn't just to kill the people there and the enemy, but it was just to destroy their economy and, and, and their natural sources of, of um, sustenance. You're going to do all that. So what the sages latch on to here, though, is why does it say you're going to fell every good tree? I mean, why should you destroy the trees? There's a verse in Deuteronomy, in verse uh, 19 of chapter 20 of Deuteronomy. It says the following. When you, when you lay siege to a city and wage war, to capture it, you must not destroy its trees. So there's a prohibition to um, destroy trees. Field, uh, we're talking about uh, fruit-producing trees, unless it's for war purposes, for the, if they're camouflaging themselves with it, you're, white, you're allowed to destroy the trees. But generally speaking, you don't just destroy the trees, okay, when you're fighting an enemy nation. So why does Elisha say in the prophecy that you're going to destroy every good tree? Well, the answer to that is Moab, they're a special case. The, the, uh, the people of Moab, the land of Moab, they seem to be an exception to the rule in many ways. For instance, if you go a couple chapters later of what we read in chapter 23, they talk about Moab and they say Moab, they're not allowed to enter the um, assembly of Hashem. They're not allowed to convert. Moabites and Ammonites, not, they're not even allowed to convert. So they're a special case. They can't convert to Judaism ever. That's, by the way, the big dispute why Ruth, the righteous Ruth, did convert to Judaism. And there was a dispute even back then. How could she convert? She's from Moab. Eventually, they gave a, a heter to it. She was allowed because she's a female, not a male. That's a story in its own right. But we see that Moab is um, a special case. And it says about them uh, in verse 7, in the chapter 23, verse 7, that you shall not seek peace or anything good 
as long as you exist. So that the sages teach us means that you can fell their trees. In other words, they're an exception. On the verse, lo, lo, um, that you, you're not allowed to seek peace with them or anything good, that goes on the trees. So there we see a special case, an exceptional exception to the rule. As a matter of fact, if you look back at the original subjugation of Moab, when David subjugated Moab at the beginning, back in uh, Shmuel Bet, I think it's chapter 8, it says that he actually kind of tortured them. He laid them down and did a selection of them, who should live and who shall die. He doesn't do that to everybody. So again, Moab is, is, uh, is especially evil nation. So we have this prophecy to even fell their good trees. Okay, so let's see now what happens. Back, let's go back to the war. What's going on now in the land of Moab? Verse 21. And Moab heard, the Moabites heard, that the kings had come up to wage war with them. So what do they do? Well, they're getting ready for war. They drafted and assembled everyone old enough to gird a sword. And they're standing at the borders and they're ready to fight these three kings. And it says in verse 22, And they woke early in the morning. And the sun was shining on the water. And when they looked at the water, it looked at them from a distance that it was red like blood. And they figured it was blood. Now what's going on? You have to remember, the water poured down. It poured down from a dome, right? A dome is not next to Moab. It's higher than that Moab. So from a dome, it rolls down to Moab. They never saw the rain. They never saw the water. But they suddenly see the valley fill of something. They don't know it's water. It never rained there before. It was never filled before. And in the morning, and Rashi brings this down, when the sun is reflecting on the water, it gives a reddish color. So they're figuring that it's blood in these valleys and in the, in the water um, wells. Not water, but blood. So it says in verse 33, Vayomer, Damze, hey, this is blood. So they're figuring that what happened, why is there blood there? Because the kings have fought with each other. And let's go to the spoil. So let's figure it again again. Never, they've never seen water in those wells. It's not supposed to fill up. And they didn't see the rainfall in Dome. So they see red in the wells. They figure it's blood. And what is it? The blood of the three kings who fought against one another. What else could it be? So now they're going running to, to the spoils. They want to pounce upon the spoils. So it says in verse... 24, they came to the Israeli camp. But what happened? The Israelites stroke and struck Moab, and they fled before them. So when the Moabites were coming to the Israel camp, they weren't coming in war formation. They were coming in pounce on the booty formation. They weren't ready for any kind of warfare. So the Jewish army and Adom, they, they destroy the armies of Moab. And it says, They struck them and they struck the Moabites. So how can they struck them twice? So one of the haiku of the struck them goes on the land of Moab. And the other haiku goes on the Moabites themselves. So you have twice struck them and struck them. 
One is on the people, one is on the land. And let's see how they attack the land itself. Verse 25, they are Rimyarosu, and they demolish the cities. So everybody, every soldier, and there's a lot of them, each one just picked up a stone and he put it in the field and he messes up their agriculture. And And what else do they do? They stopped up every water spring. And that's, again, really coincides with the prophecy of Elisha and called Etztovia Pilu. Again, word for word, what Elisha predicted. They felled every good tree. So they're destroying the land of Moab, not just the people. And then it says, But they did not destroy the city of Chareshet. So what's going on? There's catapults, catapults surrounding the city of Chareshet and striking it and, and, and shooting at it. So we have in the, at the end of verse 25, somehow there's been like a stalemate that Moab has now fortified themselves in the city of Chareshet, it's called, Chareshet, and the Jewish people, Yesobu, they've surrounded the city and are shooting at it with catapults. So we have a siege on the city, okay? There's a siege on the city. This is like Moab's last stand. They're all fortified in this city. It's obviously the metropolis of Moab where the king was, and he's fortifying himself in this city. So, the war now continues. Verse 26, And the king of Moab saw that the men of war were strong than him. He sees that the Jews are winning. So he takes with him 700 men, who drew their sword, So they try to charge and break through the siege to break away to the king of Edom, but they weren't able to do it. So he's, these are desperate efforts now by the king of Moab to somehow try to salvage victory here in the face of defeat. So it says now in the final verse, so what does he do after he doesn't succeed in breaking his way to Edom? He took his firstborn, who would rule after him. And he brought him as a burnt offering on the wall. That is, is this wall, right? He's fortified himself behind the wall. The Jews can't penetrate it. It's his last stand. And he takes his firstborn who would reign after him and sacrifices him on the wall. This is one of the most outrageous verses in the entire Bible. The most bizarre episode you're going to ever witness. And what happened? And there was wrath upon Israel. And they went from him, they withdrew, they retreated from him, and returned to Israel. So something happened here. What happened? What is this human sacrifice that Mesha, the king of Moab, offers, and how does that called graph and Israel? That's something we're going to have to spend a lot of time on, because again, it's one of the more bizarre episodes in the Bible. Stay tuned.